You're listening to Comedy Central. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen. Are there any moments or spots on any of the sets we worked on over the seven years that you guys felt more at home that were like your little spots on the set you like to hang out? I'm afraid it was the sink. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, yeah. You had to act <laughs> by the sink a lot. a lot. Yeah. I was behind the counter. Yeah. Right. Doing business constantly. Uh-huh. Mom stuff. Uh-huh. Disciplining you <laughs> in some way. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Today's Ears Edition episode features an extended interview with Hillary Clinton from November 1st, 2017. Please welcome Hillary Rodham Clinton. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So wonderful to have you. Uh, I know that you hurt your foot, and I got you a gift. Uh, We're going to play it right now. Oh, good. What did did President Clinton, uh, or President Clinton wannabe... He campaigned so close, so much for President, uh, well, Hillary Clinton. What we should be focusing on are the continued lies of the Clinton administration. (laughs) How does it make you feel... Knowing that in one world you won. I've noticed this seems to be a theme with them. Right. Yes. And I can only say, if they want to make that world a reality, I'm still ready. (laughs) Jokes aside, though, I know there are a lot of people who wish you were president, especially on a day like today, especially on a day like yesterday. An attack happens in New York. People want a leader to come out and uh, not just come out, but a leader who can embody what people are feeling and speak to their fears and their concerns, someone who can pronounce diversity. (laughs) When you see Donald Trump speaking and when you see his rhetoric in and around what happened, how does that make you feel and what do you think you would be doing differently? Well, it's so disappointing, uh, Trevor, because, you know, I was um, a senator from New York on 9-11. I was with uh, President Obama through a lot of difficult decisions as his secretary of state. I obviously saw my husband responding to uh, tragedies, attacks, the Oklahoma City bombing. And what you want in a president is what I think 
the three men I just mentioned delivered, and that is trying to bring the country together, talk about what happened with the event that uh, they are concerned about, but not to point fingers, not to scapegoat, right. not to try to set Americans against each other. And unfortunately, that just is not part of the job that our current president accepts or is willing to perform. And his immediate reaction is always to blame somebody, to play to our worst uh, feelings. And I really regret that. You know, I take no pleasure in the kinds of behavior that we're seeing out of the White House. I worried about what kind of president he would be, but I hoped he would grow into the job and be a reconciling figure. You know, of course he can have his own point of view and, and push his policies. That goes with the job. Right. But not to continue to divide Americans against each other. So uh, we saw that again. Uh, what we needed, I, uh, coming out here, I checked. He still hasn't talked to the mayor or the governor uh, here in New York. He hasn't reached out to talk about what more we might need here in the city. We saw total silence after the massacre in Las Vegas. 58 right. people murdered, 600 people injured. Some of them are going to be quadriplegic and other terrible uh, consequences. He just doesn't have any empathy. And you can disagree with somebody over all kinds of partisan issues, but you want to have a president who can try to put himself into the shoes, the feelings of somebody else, and right. he has uh, not been able to do that. It's interesting that you point out the divide, because in America's politics right now, it feels like uh, the latency between an event and the politicizing has been shortened, and I mean in terms of people fighting each other over the event. Russia has latched onto this. Yes, they have. They've found that this is one of America's biggest weaknesses. We've seen in Congress mm -hmm. people testifying about how effectively Russia used social media. How do you think the American government and Congress in particular should be reacting to the threat from foreign nations? Well, that's why, you know, I wrote a chapter about Russia in the book because I think it's one of the most serious threats we face. I think it's an ongoing threat. It didn't start and stop in 2016. Right. In fact, we know it's continuing. We've seen evidence that Russian trolls and bots and agents are still fomenting uh, discord and conflict within our country. That is classic propaganda, and the Russians are really good at it. You right. can ask the Europeans. They've been subjected to it for a lot longer than we have. And what I wished, and if I had been fortunate enough to uh, be president, I would have said, look, we need a an independent commission that gets to the bottom of what happened. I don't care who's involved. I don't care where it leads. We need to figure this out. We need to take steps to protect our country. Right. This is cyber warfare. You know, it's not tanks and planes and ships, but it is a form of war. And we've never had an adversary who attacked us with so few consequences. And I think that's in large measure because the president is so ambivalent. I mean, he has to know. Uh, we'll find out what he knew and, and, and how involved he was. But he had to know that people were making outreach to Russians to the highest levels of the Kremlin in order to help him, to hurt me, but more importantly, to sow this divisiveness. Right. And the ads that the Congress is now releasing are very well done. Right. And when people say, well, we can't prove it affected uh, anything, why would anybody 
spend money on advertising if you don't think it affects something. So companies spend money on advertising, political candidates do, and now we know the Russians uh, did. So if we don't get to the bottom of it, we're not going to know what to believe, and that plays right into the hands of authoritarians. Because a democracy depends upon having some common factual basis on which to make decisions. And in the absence of that, then people will tear each other apart because they will be living in echo chambers where what they hear is what they think is the truth and somebody else over here has their own echo chamber. It will be even more difficult to bring our country together in that kind of circumstance. When, when you look at the conversations in the echo chambers, one popular narrative that has emerged in and around Russia has been the Clinton dossier, mm. uh, the documents involving Donald Trump and P. Uh, which has now come out as a document that the DNC and your campaign worked to pay for. Now, people say, Hillary, is there a difference between your team paying for this opposition research uh, and Donald Trump's people working with the Russians to influence the election? Is there a difference? Of course there is. And, you know, I think most serious people understand that. This was uh, research started by a Republican donor during the Republican primary And then when Trump got the nomination uh, for the Republican Party, uh, the people doing it came to my campaign lawyer and said, you know, would you like us to continue it? And and he said, yes, he's an experienced lawyer. He knows what the law is. He knows what opposition research is. And, you know, from my perspective, it didn't come out before the election, as we all know. And what also didn't come out, which I think is an even bigger problem, um, as I write in the book, is that the American people didn't even know that the FBI was investigating the Trump campaign because of connections with Russia starting in the summer of 2016. Right. So I know that voters should have had that information. That's something that may have influenced some people. And it's part of what happens uh, in a campaign where you get information that may or may not be useful and you try to make sure anything you put out into the public arena is accurate. And so this thing didn't come out until after the election and it's still being uh, evaluated. But the fact of the FBI investigation into the Trump campaign and Russia should have come out. I'm enjoying this conversation, so we're going to have more of it. We'll be right back with more from Hillary Rodham Clinton (laughs) right after this. Hillary Rodham Clinton. Uh, now, real quick, we just found this out uh, in the break. Uh, I guess from your mouth, you said <laughs> Donald Trump uh, was beaten up for not uh, speaking to de Blasio or Governor Cuomo, and it literally just broke that Trump finally came out and spoke to them. So I think you need to say more things <laughs> that Donald Trump should do. Ah. Uh, I, I think that's a good idea. It's like a magic trick. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad he did. That's it, good. Does it, does it feel frustrating sometimes as somebody who has always been in the service uh, of people in this country, seeing somebody like Donald Trump working to dismantle everything? At some point, to be honest, it feels spiteful. Everything Obama did, Donald Trump wants mm-hmm. to do the opposite. Like, at some point, I'm going, right. he's just going to go, like, divorce Michelle. Like, he's going to do it himself. <laughs> and, and, and my White House. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Right, yes. exactly. Yeah, as they like to say. Look, I think there is a lot of spite involved. And I don't think it's just against President Obama, although that is his primary uh, target. He's going back and trying to undo or 
frankly, ignore things that were done by prior presidents. My biggest concern right now are twofold. Health care, you know, the health care exchanges, enrollment starts today. Right. And so people who need health care should go to uh, health.gov and sign up to get uh, insurance because they would like it to just be denied for people. So we can't let that happen. The other thing is the children's health insurance program, something I worked on in the 90s. It was bipartisan. Nine million kids a year get their health care from it. They haven't reauthorized it. They don't seem to understand or care that all these kids and their families are really uh, at risk. So I think that People who follow these issues have to be much more outspoken. And yes, he's going to try to undo, I'm afraid, much of the 20th century at the rate we're going here. And we can't let that happen. When you you look at something like health care, the ACA, a.k.a. Obamacare, Mm -hmm. you write in the book, and it really is an interesting uh, dilemma that you faced, where you were trying to start something new. This was the promise of what Hillary Clinton would try and do in Mm -hmm. office. At the same time, you had this responsibility to preserve the legacy of Barack Obama and the Democratic Party. It comes with its pros and its cons, Mm -hmm. one of them being the Affordable Care Act. Right. Many people in the swing states were on that cusp of earning a certain amount of money. And I believe it was your husband who even said, this is a horrible system where some people are just there and yet they're getting drilled by their premiums. If you were the president, if you had gone on to win... What would you be doing now to work on fixing mm-hmm. uh, the Affordable Care Act as it stands? Because it's not perfect, but what would you be doing to fix it? Well, you know, Trevor, what was so interesting is that for seven years, the Republican Party said, repeal and replace. Right. And then they get control of the White House and the Congress, and they look at each other and say, just kidding. What do we do now? <laughs> because it was a carefully constructed act, and I really applauded uh, President Obama and his team, as well as congressional leaders, And it got us to 90% of universal coverage. We had 10% to go. So you're 100% accurate in describing the dilemma I found myself in. It would be a lot easier to go out and say, oh, forget what was done. Let's do something brand new and start from scratch. Or on the other side, it was terrible. Let's get rid of it. I'm going to do something wonderful, but I won't tell you what it is. And (laughs) so I... I, Can I just say, you're really good at that. You should have done that more often. Yeah, well, I, I I felt like... I was I was in the midst of the first reality TV campaign. Right, you were. And he was the first reality TV candidate, and yes. I was the candidate of reality. And you know that is <laughs> that is not as entertaining, right? <laughs> it was it was a challenge all the way through. There was a big challenge for you as well, and this is something that I people want to fight, and it's hard to deny, but. There is a big part of this that did have to deal with misogyny. And now I'm not saying everyone who voted against you voted because they didn't like that you were a woman. But I know from covering it even on the show, we had people who would say, Hillary cannot be president. We can't have a woman as president. I like women, but not in the White House. Uh, when you look at uh, misogyny and you write about it in the book and sexism, it does feel like since the election, there has been a backlash. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm referring, obviously, like to the Harvey Weinstein scandal and to what's happening. People, mm-hmm. even in Congress, speaking mm-hmm. out now. Mm-hmm. Do you see a positive shift in a direction that we need to be going in? How do you see the landscape as it stands as really someone who experienced it, I think, a thousandfold more than anyone? 
I am cautiously optimistic uh, because, as I write in the book, um, sexism and misogyny uh, are endemic in our society, not just our politics. We've seen lots of stories out of Silicon Valley, out of the media. We know that it, unfortunately, uh, is pervasive. But what I'm excited about is that we've had thousands and thousands of women, a lot of young women, say, you know what, I'm going right into the public arena, I'm going to run for office. I see them, I support them with my organization Onward Together, because the only way to get sexism out of politics is to get more women into politics and give them the chance to serve. When you... Um when you look at the, uh, the, the Harvey Weinstein scandal, uh, one of the things you do find is a lack of power. Somebody leveraging their power and abusing it. Uh, there were obviously pictures, photographs of you and Harvey Weinstein, and so people went, Hillary, this person, like many other people, raised money for you, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which means you supported Harvey Weinstein in everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Now, look, I, I'm not going to waste your time with that because I understand it's ridiculous. What I would like to know, though, is... This was a question that was asked to many people is, did anyone ever raise any concerns to you about Harvey Weinstein? No. No, and it was, it was really upsetting and shocking. And I felt, you know, that so many people who had been in democratic politics uh, for many years uh, had known him in one capacity but not in the other. Right. And so I do think that it's very important that more women step forward and describe their experiences. But I also am in a picture with Donald Trump, and he's on tape confessing to sexual assault uh, with the Hollywood Access tape. So this is a pervasive problem that has to be dealt with, and more women have to be given the support they need, uh, that they can come forward. Because I've talked to some of these young women uh, over the years who have been facing these kinds of, uh, you know, difficult choices. And, you know, maybe now with these revelations coming out, more people will feel emboldened. And most importantly, the spotlight will shine on people who will think twice about doing some of these terrible things that they are reported to have done. When you look at the role of money in politics, because that's what it all ties back into, uh, there is something to be said for how politicians in America are unfortunately tied to the money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you ever see a future where that goes away? Is there ever a time or a place where you can see somebody in Congress or, you know, in, cap- in the Capitol building saying, guys, let's shut it all down. No more money in politics. Let's yeah. go back to people choosing what laws should govern them. You know, I thought we were on the right track. When I was in the Senate, I voted for something <clears throat> called the McCain-Feingold bill, which was an attempt to rein in money. But the Republicans took it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, in a series of decisions, ending with a horrible decision called Citizens United, basically said, money is speech, and we're not going to regulate it. And we're going to let people not only give large amounts of money, but we're not even going to require that they disclose it if they do it in a certain uh, way. It was one of the worst decisions in American history. And I, I was the first... Uh, recipient of what that meant because that decision was in 2013. So the campaign in 2016 was the first where money had no limits and very uh, right-wing billionaire types uh, were out there raising money, putting money into data operations, putting money into ads, doing things that uh, really did influence uh, voters. And 
it was the first time combined with that, the Voting Rights Act wasn't protecting the fundamental sacred right to vote. So right. voter suppression was at work. And I detail that in the book because, look, I'm not running for anything. What I'm trying to do is to get people to pay attention to what happened in 2016 because it will happen again. More and more people, particularly young people and African-Americans, will be squeezed out of voting because of onerous ID requirements. More and more money will be flooding into all these races, not just at the national level, but state and local races, because there is a group of people who know exactly what they want. They want to pursue their partisan, commercial, ideological and religious objectives. And they know the way to do that is just to flood the zone with money. So I said in the campaign, and I believe this, and I'm certainly going to see if there's a way to do this, we have to amend our Constitution because I don't think this court will overturn Citizens United right. and these other cases. And if people really care, as we should, about money and politics, we need to get an amendment which says, yes, you can regulate money and you can put limits on it and you can't just give a blank check to these powerful interests. And I don't know anybody in politics except, you know, the the most right oriented uh, free speech equals money people who wouldn't say, thank goodness, let's right. get it out. Let's get it regulated, because what we're doing now is selling our elections uh, far, far too often to people who just are going to pour the money in and distort reality, make up stuff, engage in false attacks. Before I let you go, um, one question I was asked repeatedly uh, was, please ask Hillary what her message would be to every woman out there, especially every young woman, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. going, I see you and I saw a dream. I saw that dream rise and I saw it shatter. Do I still dream for the same? Yeah. And how do you continue to dream after what happened to you? I get asked this a lot. You know, as I've been going around, um, I've been signing books, I've probably shaken hands with and talked to 10,000 people in lines at book signings. I've talked to thousands more in events about the book. And I say what I said in my concession speech. Never, ever doubt that fighting for what is right is worth it. Is it hard? Do you sometimes feel that nobody is listening? Are there setbacks? Yes, that goes with the territory. But don't give up on your dreams and do everything you can not only to chase your dreams, but to help others realize theirs as well. And when it comes to little girls, um, I really tried to make a point in the concession speech of telling them, you know, use your voice. Don't be shut down. Don't be told that you have nothing to say. I think it's important that we start really early in childhood with our little girls and boys because I believe in equality. I believe in opportunity for everybody. I believe in hard work and responsibility. And we have a culture that too often sends very damaging messages so that by the time girls are six, they think, well, boys are smarter than they are. They've just started school. There's no basis right. on which to believe that. By the time they're in their you know, early teens, they're being told they're not tall enough, they're not thin enough, they aren't you know, good enough, their social media life isn't interesting enough, and maybe they're even being bullied. So we need a concerted effort in our society to stand up for um, young women who are just starting out, trying to decide 
what they want to do. And we need laws, some of which we have, others of which we could use, uh, to make sure that they're not discriminated against and that they do get equal pay for equal work and all the other ideas that I believe in. But ultimately, Trevor, this has to come down to mothers and fathers and grandparents and aunts and uncles and teachers all making clear we won't let anybody bully you. We are not going to tolerate bullying. We're not going to tolerate insults and the kind of personal attacks. We are not going to let you have your self-image decided by what you see on social media, which we know is manipulated and oftentimes out of whack with what is really going on in somebody's life. And we're going to give you the best chance to be confident and resilient. And then, you know, get out there and follow those dreams and do the best you can to make your life one of purpose and meaning and have some fun uh, with it along the way. Have some fun with it along the way. Thank Thanks. you so much for being on the show. One of the most fascinating parts of the book for me was when you talked about the future of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. It's no secret that the Democratic Party has hemorrhaged in many different states in many different ways. How do you begin rebuilding? Where do you start? Well, I think you have to do three things all at once. Um, you do have to recruit uh, people to actually run for office at all levels. Part of the reason we hemorrhaged is that we didn't have enough people who actually put themselves out there. Um, right. And they didn't run for local offices, which are often the pipeline to higher offices. And that's why I'm thrilled to see so many people saying they're interested, and I'm going to do everything I can to help them. I think, secondly, we have to not only stand for our beliefs and our values, but don't walk away from what makes us Democrats. And here's what I mean by that. We believe in a fair economy that is inclusive and provides opportunity for everybody. Right. And we have some pretty good ideas about how to do that. Contrary to the Republicans, and particularly this administration, who want to slash taxes disastrously on the very wealthiest, instead of building up public education and job training and skills training and infrastructure and affordable housing and things that will actually give more people a better chance. So while the economic agenda is key and something I talked about all the time, we're also not going to walk away from human rights and civil rights and women's rights and gay rights and stand up for people's inherent dignity. Right. So I think you have to have that together. There are some who say, well, you know, forget the economy or, oh, forget all the human rights and other uh, fundamental values. No, goes hand in hand. So, so, so to that then, looking at the races that are coming up in 2018, right. there is a big discussion in what the Democratic Party should stand for. Mm -hmm. As Hillary Clinton, you do have a voice, as much as some people would like you not to. You do. <laughs> you have a powerful voice that means something. Looking at some of these races, looking at the arguments some people have, they go, well, maybe we should loosen what being a Democrat means. Mm. Would you, as Hillary Clinton, support a Democratic candidate who says that they are pro-life and they're not pro-choice? We have Democratic candidates, and we have Democratic office holders who say that. And I think that there has to be a, a big tent. I write about that in the book. Where I would draw the line is, yes, I believe that this most intimate of decisions 
should be rooted in your personal faith, your personal views, your right. understanding of your life, your health, and all that goes with it. Abortion is at the lowest rate it's been since 1973 when Roe v. Wade was decided. So we are doing something right by helping people. And along comes the Trump administration and they say, we're going to cut back on family planning and birth control. Right. How cruel is that? So I think we were on the right track. And I think that I, I'm for people there. We have we have Democrats who are much more pro-gun than I am. I think we should be, you know, trying to ban bump stocks and prevent what happened in Las Vegas with the murder of 58 people and wounding of 600 people. Right. So you can have differences of opinion and yet at the same time not want to legislate or litigate uh, changes that would deprive people of their life and livelihood. Final, final question with regards to that. Looking at the Democratic Party now, looking at Hillary Clinton, one thing far too many people say, and I have my own opinions on this, is why won't you just go away? Mm. Right? This is... <laughs> this is what people say. I right. honestly have my own views, and, you know, I, I, I relate it to my mom and things people have said to her, but I... When you hear that, like I say, I have my idea on where it comes from, how do you feel... And what does it make you want to do? Write a book explaining what happened and come on your show and other places. You know, some of it is just rank sexism. Let's just be honest right. about it. it. I never heard anybody say that to Al Gore or John Kerry or right. John McCain or Mitt Romney, all the men who lost elections in the last uh, 17, 18 years. So some of it is just that. Some of it, I will say, is media guilt. You know, when they oh, now wow. have to face the way they covered this campaign and the fact that they didn't pay any attention to policies, which, you know, I thought would be important and spent a lot of time saying, OK, here's what we're going to do on an infrastructure plan. Right, here's what we're going right, to do right. to improve the Affordable Care Act and everything I worked on. They were so totally entranced by the reality TV element of it and the entertainment value of it that I'm told in some members of the press have privately said to me, um, look, they missed it. They missed it. They thought I was going to win so they could beat up on me without right. consequence. Right. And they didn't really stand up against a lot of the ridiculous uh, lies and accusations uh, against me. So I think there's that. And then thirdly, I think there are people who are genuinely worried that, you know, we've got to make room for new voices. That's why I'm supporting candidates and causes I believe in. And yet a lot of these people who are primarily young people just getting started, they've got tremendous energy. They're not going to get on your show. I am. And so I'm going to say we need to stand up for our fundamental values. We need to be promoting and electing people who care about the American public, who are not in it for self-enrichment, who are not in it to have a spite match with former President Obama, who did a great job and is now being, you know, mistreated by his successor. So, OK, I can get that voice out there and I'm going to keep talking. I'm not going anywhere. I walked in the woods. That was enough. I'm done with that. <laughs> The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for exclusive content and more.
This has been a Comedy Central podcast. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.